My name is Matt Asbury, and I'm the director of photography on Pixar's Soul. And you're listening to the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is Matt Asbury. He's the director of photography for Disney Pixar's Soul on Disney Plus right now. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, we have a ton to talk about with Matt, but I just want to take a quick moment and tell you about our sponsor, MZ. I want to thank those guys, Education for Creatives. Check them out at mz.com. And of course, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're doing a lot of exclusive YouTube content, so make sure you subscribe there. And while you're in the mood for subscribing, please subscribe to Go Creative Show on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. So, Matt, I loved Soul. I mean, every Pixar movie is just awesome no matter what. But my God, how great of a film. This is just fantastic. Yeah, no, I mean, I leave it to Pete Doctor to just, you know, really, he just comes up with such creative uh, ideas. Each one's just kind of pushing new bounds. And um, this one, you know, just, uh, yeah, just the amount of challenges, both technically and visually in it, as well as just the storyline, um, Yeah, we just loved it. I mean, it was just such a fun movie to work on. Now, I want to know, a lot of people don't necessarily associate animation with cinematography in a way. Right, right. You kind of think of them as two separate entities. Um, Talk to me about what a cinematographer's role is in an animation, like, you know, Soul. Yeah, so it is divided between myself and another artist, as on each film it is. And so I'm on the front end, which is basically, we call it in, in, in the studio, we call it layout which is essentially the term or the name it's had since early days of Disney and, you know, just 2D animation going way back. So um, we're basically the ones who are essentially the the, uh, cinematographers or the camera people who translate the storyboards into the 3D environment, you know, using kind of the principles of film language and just, um, you know, everything that that a live action film, uh, you know, cinematographer would consider. And so basically, you know, we're, we're kind of that initial stage because everything up until our department was, you know, just 2D uh, drawn storyboards in a story reel for years. You know, sometimes they're working on these things for years before it comes to us. And so we're really um, that first you know, time to figure out the timing of things, the, you know, the camera movement, the kind of choreography, just uh, what, you know, what the characters, um, you know, are do, actually doing in the scene, how they're blocked. So we're responsible for all of that, um, you know, and then we're doing it in a rough form because we know it's going to be animated after us. But um, and, you know, we and even though um, the lighting, you know, DP who comes much later down the road, um, we're, you know, even though we're separated by months, really, that, that kind of time period has actually collapsed in the last few films. And it used to be you know, lighting wouldn't really start until much later on, you know, after things were well uh, into animation or later. Um, and now we, we have just much, each film is, you know, really getting closer and closer and we're really collaborating a lot more. So Ian and I worked closely on that. So you're planning your shots as a director of photography, but you're not able to light. The lighting comes after. That's interesting to me because, I mean, directors of photography and I guess traditional film, lighting is it. Yeah, it is. That said, though, we actually have a, you know, a very rough lighting preview. And actually, Ian, um, you know, and the lighting DP on this film, 
uh, was actually giving us kind of very temp lighting, and you know, as we were doing our shots. So we would kind of do these location scout shots, basically in our software, which is called Presto. And then I would hand that to him, and um, and he would basically then go in, and and he loved it because it was a you know very early preview for it uh, to get his head around what the lighting would be, you know, ultimately when it did come to his group. And so, you know, again, we, we do have shadows now. I mean, but when I first got to Pixar, we didn't have any of that. It was lighting was really much later. And, um, uh, you know, we worked on Wally with Roger Deakins. He consulted on our, that film. Oh, wow. And, and that was the very first thing he said when he, you know, got there is he just, he was shocked that how divorced, uh, the two uh, parts of the process were. Um, and he just said, you know, whatever 50 60 percent of his job was lighting and he just couldn't imagine not having that in there and so you know right around that film is when we first started to they started to really work on it but yeah it was very separate for a long time so what are you actually working with so like you're what you you get on set you're ready to do your work for the day yeah are you using virtual cameras? Are you like wh- how are you how are you conducting the filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, we you know again, it's all taking place within our software, which is Presto, and it's um, for people who aren't that familiar with. I mean, you know, there's third party programs out there like Maya and 3D Studio Max, and you know, a lot of different other packages that uh, studios use. Presto is essentially kind of um, you know just our own in-house version of that. But yes, you do have a camera in there, and you have we have a lens package in there. And then, you know, depth of field preview and you can, you know, put your camera on a dolly track and on a crane rig, you know, all within this, this 3D environment. That said, we do have another process, which we use as well, which is we can actually go into a, you know, a 3D capture volume. And we have a few of them at the studio and you can actually sit there with an iPad and actually move around in the space and you have screens around you kind of showing you, you know, what you're actually seeing. And, and some, some directors um, really like that approach. Um, we also use that particular approach for uh, later on when we're doing camera polish to, you know, mimic better the, uh, the feel of, uh, and movements of a, of a live action camera. Yeah. And I noticed that in this film in particular, it really <laughs> felt like someone was operating in a way, you know what I mean? It, it felt yeah. like that. Yeah. And we wanted that, you know, I mean, actually that was, you know, since we had two worlds basically to shoot in this film, um, we really wanted them to feel distinct. And not only do they look, you know, they look very different, obviously. Uh, the soul world is very, um, it's, you know, everything's made up of these volumes and kind of very soft, ethereal. And so, uh, and then the lighting treatment, everything's different. For New York, we wanted it to feel like it was handheld and just, you know, just to, first of all, to reflect the kind of overall chaos of it. And then to make it feel like somebody, um, that was just a texture that we wanted in there to really contrast it against the soul world. And the soul world, if you look at it, it's very elegant, kind of weightless. We wanted a feeling of weightlessness on the cameras there to feel like they weren't necessarily obeying the laws of physics or, you know, just how a camera. And, you know, we do have some handheld stuff in the soul world, depending on the sequence. But um, that was that was really important to us. Also, because the textures are so... Um, you know, almost photoreal in some cases in the New York scene. So I think at the barbershop in particular, you know, it's gorgeous. And um, so we, we really felt like that just having those little micro adjusts and operations with the characters really helped kind of um, root it in that, you know, that world visually. 
Tell me about your approach to New York. How were you capturing, what was your goal for your interpretation of New York in Seoul? Um, I mean, you know, we were basically, this was the first uh, Pete Doctor film that actually was shot in 239. You know, his other films, Monsters um, Incorporated, uh, Up and Inside Out, were all 185. So for one thing, um, he, he just, you know, made the decision early on on this show that he did want to do 239. And so we were looking at a lot of uh, films, you know, some of our favorite films that were shot, a lot of them were shot in the 70s and 60s. Uh, using 239 format, um, anamorphic actually. So we use an anamorphic lens package on our New York camera. And, and you know, basically to really uh, have very shallow depth of field. And we favored a lot of long lenses on it. Some of it was just done to really compress the space. We really liked what that was doing visually, but also to kind of organize it too. There was just so much back there. And, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, in animation too, just... You know, you can't just go out on a street and shoot crowds in the background. You actually have to put those all there. And so, and then if there's too much back there, we were worried that it was just going to be hard to really focus on, uh, you know, our characters because it, it's really about Joe in 22. Um, so, you know, it was done both aesthetically as well as just uh, practically. So, you know, we could really doff out a lot of the, the background characters and cars and traffic and all that stuff. Um, and you, you got a sense of it back there, but you weren't seeing it in vivid, you know, crisp detail. Yeah. So. How much of the scene was complete when it was time to actually apply cameras and lenses and all of that to it? Oh, so basically the way we work is, um, you know, again, we're, we're the one in our department, uh, the layout department. None of it is. I mean, really, it's just storyboard form to us. So we went in, you know, on the average sequence, um, you know, something like the barbershop or uh, even this chase in the subway, we actually have to kind of, you know, previs that out essentially. And um, again, you know, in layout, we do rough character blocking, but we have to know, you know, what the rough speed of a character running through the streets is or a subway in order to have your camera accurately film that. And so, um, you know, we actually get things really tight. I mean, we're then basically working with the editorial department, you know, the real difference between live action and animation is in animation, since it's so expensive and labor intensive, you basically are shooting and editing your film up front. And so by, you know, you don't want it going into animation and then you're figuring out, oh, well, we're going to cut this or you want to know exactly what the lengths of each shot, are, you know, is. And, and you just want to know exactly what that timing is. And so um, as opposed to getting into the shooting a whole bunch of stuff, getting into the editing room like you do in live action, and then you're kind of making your movie in the editing room sometimes, we have to do that months and months ahead of time. So, so basically it's on us um, to really put all of that blocking and to kind of anticipate. And, and once it goes to the animation department, they'll deviate from it sometimes, but it, largely it stays pretty close to what we've worked out. Um, you know, and we'll, we're constantly chasing, um, you know, as soon as they, they decide, oh, actually this character would move a lot faster through the scene, or oftentimes it's a lot slower um, than we think, then, then we have to go back in and kind of adjust those cameras and massage them and get it to look um, more in sync with what they're uh, putting in there. Are you working with 
essentially like wireframe type of level? No, no. I mean, this is all very, very fleshed out. You know, years ago, I mean, back in the early days of Pixar, it wasn't it wasn't even wireframe, but it was, you know, characters in T-poses. Sometimes they didn't even have eyes. I mean, just basic, basic. They were chess pieces, essentially, that you were moving around. And, and when you go back and look at that stuff now, and this, it wasn't just Pixar, it was just... Um, it was amazing that you even knew what you had back at that stage because it was so rough. Mm. And now if you look at it, I mean, you know, layout is getting to the point where it's practically, you know, roughly animated. Again, it, the animators bring incredible work to it. So we're, we're not even approaching what they're doing. But but it, it is, we have run cycles on there and um, and the characters, you know, they don't have all the, the, the you know nice shading that you see in the final renders of the film. But they look like the characters, and they have hair and clothes, and you know all of the simulation on their clothes. Now we're, we're even seeing in layout. So wow. whereas whereas several films ago we were using basically naked characters sometimes, you know, just because of the, it was just uh, faster, and you just didn't want to deal with that at our, at the layout stage. Yeah. What is the biggest challenge for you working in animation as a cinematographer? Um, I, I mean. You know, it's, it's, I'd say it varies film to film, honestly. I mean, it's just, you know, each film kind of um, dictates, you know, what, what you're going to bring to it and what you want to do with it. And and we, um, you know... Well, what about in this in this film? In this film, I mean, our, by far our greatest challenge on this film was the fact that we felt like we were making two separate movies the whole time because like the that. worlds were so different and the treatments of them, and then and the soul world in particular was so hard because um, all of that stuff that you see in the final film, in terms of just the uh, the volumes, uh, the ethereal quality to it, even the grass, you know, that you see in the U seminar, we we didn't really have um, a good preview of that at the layout stage. We were guessing a lot of the time, so the amount of iterating we had to do when that those um, sequences and shots went into animation was much more so than the New York. The New York stuff, honestly, was very straightforward by comparison. So, um, you know, it's, it was just the challenge of, of all that, uh, just dealing with it and, again, kind of guessing while you were... And it was hard, you know, to show the, those sequences to the director, too, Pete, because it was such a leap of faith. Um, you know, we had some maybe still frame renders of, okay, it's going to look like this, but you were, you know, it wasn't until many months after the fact that it really started to come together in the Soul World sequences. Are you involved in the look of these environments at all, other than running the cinematography of it? Like, we talked to so many d- directors of photography that yes. are talking about visual references they bring. Yes, uh, How does that process go? Um, you know, I mean, basically, we, you know, we had this uh, great little group that we, it was me- meeting a couple, I'd say, you know, depending on um, where we were in the production, but it was every couple weeks we would get together, myself and Ian, the lighting DP, as well as uh, Kevin Nolting, the editor, and then Steve Pilcher is the production designer, and then Pete Doctor, basically. And we would just meet and all talk about, as each sequence was nearing production, which was basically moving into our department, we would talk about just ideas that we wanted to kind of hit on um, aesthetically as well as cinematically. And so we were kind of all lining up on it. Um, and, and we, you know, through that, we were also kind of creating almost like a lookbook of just different films we were referencing or just different looks. Honestly, you know, for the jazz stuff, we were looking at uh, photos of Roy DiCarava and just some of these 
beautiful black and white. Um, we also had Bradford Young was consulting on the film. Oh, wow. um, so he, you know, he was, you know, and he was honestly mostly dealing with, um, you know, helping out Ian's um, group, you know, cause he was uh, having a lot of input on the lighting of the film, but he, he was tremendous. I mean, just getting to talk to him and hear, you know, just how he approached things and, you know, in terms of lenses used and, and, uh, and he would say the same thing that it was very different depending on, um, the film he was on and the, as well as the director he was paired with. And so, um, but, but anyway, you know, th- that small group that we, um, had assembled, it was just so great to, because then by the time sequences were entering production, um, you know, it, it felt like we had kind of talked through a lot of stuff and there weren't any huge surprises. MZ is the perfect place to hone your creative skills. It has never been a better time. On MZ, you have hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education covering all sorts of topics that we all need to know. Directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And of course, the education's only as valuable as its teacher, right? If you don't have good educators, then you don't really get to learn the same way. But that's not the case at MZ because they have high-quality educators. I'm talking about Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbert, Philip Bloom. Uh, They have Tom Cross. He's the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, doing a whole course on the art and technique of film editing. So they've got really high-profile people that are doing just fantastic, amazing work. And it doesn't end there. There are hundreds of hours of content there on MZ. And if you become an MZ Pro member, you get access to everything everything on the site. And yes, you can buy individual courses, but that MZ Pro membership is exactly what we here at Go Creative Show really need. And I've got good news for you. You get 20% off your purchase by using GCS20 at checkout. GCS20 for 20% off. So check it out for yourself. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. We've got a question from uh, one of our Instagram followers about your visual approach in the hyper-realistic look of New York. Uh-huh. Um, Renato uh, Groberman is asking about that. And I think it's okay. a great question because there is something. It's so realistic, this New yeah. York. Yes. It's almost that it's like that next level realism. Yes, I know. But I mean, a lot of that comes out, honestly, in the uh, the shading, um, the set shading. Uh, and I think that's what you're probably talking about. I mean, you know, so... Um, in terms of, uh, you know, we have a whole other department that is basically constructing all of these assets, such as basically the, uh, you know, we have a whole department that de- deals with all the characters, and then we have a department that deals with all the sets and the kind of, uh, you know, non-animating elements. And, um, you know, a lot of that realism, I think, comes through the shading that they apply to those objects. And honestly, that's a, it's a really tough thing, too, because you know, you're, you're kind of on these two parallel paths where the characters are being designed and then you have this other group that's designing the sets and, you know, you want to make sure that they're both kind of, um, being designed in tandem, maybe, you know, in terms of the textures that are, you're applying to those buildings, you don't want them to feel so photo real that then you stick this character in there and it looks completely out of place. Um, so it's, it's really tricky in that regard, but I, I, I feel like they did a good job on this. I mean, the characters, you're never going to mistake any of these characters for, you know, real human beings, you know, both in the way they move as well as just their stylization. 
but at the same time, they feel rooted in that environment. And uh, I think you feel grounded and, you know, hopefully you're not distracted and saying, wow, that looks like a, a fake character, you know, person standing in a, a photoreal set. Well, I think that's always the struggle. Animation, like I think the Holy Grail, or at least I thought the Holy Grail was to have animation look as realistic as possible. But it seems like yeah. the Holy Grail is really having characters that fit the environment and, and have it just feel right. Yeah, I mean, because there's all levels of that. You know, there's very. Um, I, I think I think it's just kind of uh, deciding on a vision very early on and making sure that everything then um, holds up to that and not having things. One, you know, the environments either be too too realistic or the characters the other way around. Um, and it's really hard, I think. And and you know, a lot of it depends on the pipeline that you've got set up at the studio that. Um, all those shaders that have been written and everything. And then, you know, and then our lighting materials that basically are uh, reacting to those shaders. Um, but, you know, and Ian would, um, could, you know, give you more info on that, that particular aspect of it. But it, for sure, in New York, he was going for a very naturalistic uh, lighting scheme. And especially you look at those scenes in the jazz club. Again, I, I think about, you know, his, um, Lippa's tailor shop as well as the, um, you know, even his apartment. I mean, you see that stuff and, and then, uh, yeah, I just, I, I think all of those things, I, you know, again, hopefully it's, it's not feeling to the degree that it's photo real and you're just thinking that, you know, oh, that they just photographed a real set or something. I think it's got a stylization. It is. And I think it helps you draw into the characters too. I want to talk with you about the way you approach filming human characters, you know, like yeah. representations of humans in the New York world. And yeah. then how you treat shooting characters that are clearly not human in the soul world, because yeah. uh, are, are you changing your cinematography techniques to reflect kind of what we expect as audiences for humans versus kind of supernatural characters I, I mean to a degree you know some of it goes back to that um having a more handheld organic feel for the new york stuff to feel more reactive i mean we had the added challenge in soul and the new york stuff we have a six foot four guy joe and then a, a cat for that whole part of the movie and you know and we've had other movies where we have these massive size discrepancies and to get the two of them in a frame you know with without having him always crouched over or the cat up on something so that it was, it was a real challenge. I mean, in some of those shots uh, in his apartment, we just had to be very wide to hold them both. Um, so, you know, I would say that that was a big consideration on, on the flip side, the souls were actually, if you, there's a couple shots in the film, but mainly one where they get kind of uh, Terry um, sucks them in back into the soul world in that whole ch subway chase. You can actually see the souls then leaving the bodies of Joe and the cat. And so those souls were basically only, we had a metric and I don't know who came up with it. They said that there are only two apples high basically. And, you know, they, and they had to fit inside the chest essentially, but uh, up on the soul world, we were dealing with much smaller scales of everything, even though you would never know because you don't have any frame of reference up there for what a human size is, except when they go into, um, that whole hall of you, which is when Joe is looking at all of these flashbacks of his life. Yeah. That, that was a challenge basically to, um, for us to kind of, uh, just, you know, cause that was the only time we really see the souls next to that, 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 you know, the, uh, the human sized characters. And that, that was just, that, that dictated how far our camera had to be away, what type of lenses we use is and stuff. I was thinking about that size discrepancy and saying to mm -hmm. myself, like, 
they, they didn't have a real actor. They could have done yeah. whatever they wanted. Why, I, like, I know. why did you challenge yourself with that crazy size discrepancy? I, I, I know. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was one of those things that decision gets made early on and everybody holds hands. And it's not until you get, you know, months later when it's in layout and everybody's going, oh, you know, but we, we dealt with it. And it was actually you know, fine. I think I, I think there were some other films we've done where it was even, you know, a bigger challenge. But um so, you know, in terms of you know, the, the approach on the New York stuff, I'd say is more reactive, basically. Um, and then the, so one more thing on the solo world, now sure, I just thought right. of it. Um, you know, we tended to have faster cutting in the New York stuff. Just It was more visceral, just kind of faster paced scenes. Up in the solo world, we actually had these very long um, kind of master shots. So we had stuff that was basically in the boards. It was, you know... Uh, 12 or 14 shots and storyboards, we would just, we combined a lot of those into one single moving master, essentially, and a combo shot. I'm glad you mentioned that because, yes, the, there's a shift in this character. Like, mm-hmm. our, our main character changes over time, mm-hmm. and it, the way that you experience the soul world is slow, calm. You're really taking it all in. Yes. The way you experience New York is frenetic and crazy. Yes. But we're noticing that our main character, as he's realizing what his purpose really is and what that means, yeah. he's starting to experience New York the way that he experienced Seoul. And there exactly. was there's something very specific about that, and I really felt that change. That's can, great. You talk, can you talk to me about the choices that were made to give the audience that feel, to actually appreciate New York and not be so frenetic. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's, that's the uh, the interesting thing is that basically it took 22, you know, being inside of his body to kind of, for him to all of a sudden look and realize everything he was just taking for granted or glossing over in his daily life. And, you know, that shot where that whole sequence where they basically go to, you know, wait outside the jazz club for Moonwind to show up. And that's when she sees the seed pod fall down and she gets these, you know, beautiful little... Um, kind of romantic vistas, uh, you know, a guy, a father with his child and these women at a cafe and these leaves kind of, so, uh, you know, all of those kind of cameras are very graceful and kind of poetic in there. And the lighting in there is um, just this beautiful, uh, you know, dappled lighting through the, the trees, obviously the colors, it's fall in New York city as well. So uh, we really wanted to make that distinct. I mean, cause obviously when 22 first ends up in his body, it is this you know, harried, frantic thing where she's just, we wanted it to just be the sensory visual overload. I mean, New York, I think all of us feel that anytime you go to New York. I mean, it's just, you're bombarded. And so we really wanted that, you know, here's somebody who's never even been in a body or never been on earth before. And now all of a sudden she's in a six foot four guy's body and in the middle of a busy street. And so um, we, we definitely tried to really contrast those two moments one of the big stories with Soul is the representation of black characters mm-hmm. and having so many of them. Yeah. Talk to me about how, why that's important. And is this something that Pixar is thinking about doing more of, as far as you know? I mean, Pete, Pete would probably be the better person to ask on that. You know, I mean, honestly, by the time uh, myself and Ian came on as the, the DPs, you know, the, the story had pretty much been decided and figured out in that regard. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I'd say that the studio is for sure wanting to um, just diversify. I mean, I, I worked on Coco as well, and that was a big deal, you know, that, that film. Um, and, you know, same for that film, we went 
down to Mexico a few times on research trips and everything. So this, this uh, movie was, they, you know, they really wanted it to be authentic and feel, you know, just telling New York, especially from an African-American's point of view in, in New York City. Um, you know, Kemp, who was the co-director on it and the writer, um, you know, he obviously lent a huge amount of authenticity to that. But in terms of it being, um, you know, I mean, yeah. So when I think about what what are the studio right now has in production, uh, um, yeah, you know, it, it does seem to be where, you know, just branching out and trying more diverse stories. But, you know, I think overall, um, it's just the, the story has to be there first and then, um, you know, everybody has to be excited about what they're seeing. I, I don't think that we're not just making films because they're diverse. And I think, you know, it's, it's really still the goal is to tell the best story possible. Well, the film is absolutely beautiful. If you guys haven't seen it, I strongly suggest you do. It's on Disney Plus right now. It's called Soul. Excellent work. Really beautiful job, Thanks, Matt. And you. we'd love yeah. to have you back for your next project. I wish yeah. we had time to talk about Coco, which I was also yeah. obsessed with. Yeah, I know, I know. No, it's, yeah, uh, thank, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for uh, supporting the film. A huge thank you to Matt Asbury for coming on the show and talking about his experience working on Soul. If you guys haven't seen it, please go check it out. You're going to absolutely love it. It's on Disney Plus right now. I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting the whole show together behind the scenes, making it great. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And of course, I want to thank Dave Siegel for mixing, mastering, and making the show sound so good. You can find him at siegelsound.com and on Instagram, siegelsound. There you go. And while you're on Instagram, you should check us out, Go Creative Show. We put a lot of content up there as well, and we give you the opportunity to have your questions heard on the show. So that's a good place to follow us, as well as Facebook and Twitter, and of course, YouTube. Uh, we're doing a ton of exclusive content just for our YouTube subscribers. So head over to YouTube, find us, click subscribe and the notification bell, of course, uh, so you can always be abreast of what's going on in Go Creative Show world. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. I want to thank MZ Education for Creatives for sponsoring the show. And of course, all of you guys out there for listening and watching and sharing. Thank you so much for supporting the Go Creative Show. And we'll see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.